0: John 12, verse 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning now as we come to this gift from you? Uh, We come to the gift of these scriptures and we, we do believe they, that they have been sent to us from you. They are uh, not merely a record of, of things that have happened or ideas about religion, but this book is your voice. Uh, we also believe that uh, you have uh, sent us an even better gift in your son Jesus who speaks here in the words uh, that we have heard, and and we desire now to know Him. He He sometimes speaks and acts strangely, and so we ask for your help uh, to humble ourselves before what He says, and and to receive, to understand, and and even more to be changed, to be uh, built up in our faith uh, through what we have heard here this morning. And we ask for the work of your Spirit to accompany your word, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. That request in verse 20 is a unique one. Most of the time in the Gospels, when people come to Jesus, or when they come to the disciples of Jesus asking for something, they come asking for an action or an answer. They come asking, Jesus, would you heal me? Would you cast out that demon? Uh, Would you answer this theological riddle? Would you speak to this religious debate? But not here. That's not the request here. These Greeks, these non-Jewish people, come to the disciples of Jesus and they don't ask for an action or an answer. They ask for a glimpse. Sir... We want to see Jesus. Now, obviously, they are asking for more than just a glimpse of Jesus' physical form. That was already available to them. Jesus was, at this point, still in the public eye. They could see Jesus in that sense. No, they are asking for something more. I mean, to this day, we say that people who are dating are seeing each other. They are asking something akin to that. They are asking for a relational encounter with this significant person. We want to see Jesus. And that's why their request produces this extended teaching and conversation about Jesus, about his significance, about his identity, about his purpose and his mission. And that is why their request matters to us. You see, when the Greeks ask for this, they are expressing on your behalf your greatest need. When they say, we want to see Jesus, they are expressing on your behalf your greatest need. Human aspiration doesn't get higher than this. Doesn't get higher than this for a glimpse, a desire for a glimpse of Jesus. Now, for some of you, that seems like a strange thing to say. And so I want to come to this request and the response to this request. And I want to ask a couple of questions this morning. First of all, why should we see Jesus? And then second, how can we see Jesus? First of all, why? Why should we see Jesus? And the answer that literally rings out in this text is the word glory. We should want to see Jesus because of glory. He is the Son who glorifies and is glorified by the Father. We should want to see Jesus because He is the glory of God. Now what does that mean? What does that phrase, glory of God, mean? Well, the Gospel writer John, throughout this text, he weaves in the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament to help us understand what's going on here. And at the beginning of that Old Testament book, the prophet encounters the presence of God. He sees and feels the presence of God and he sees the divine king high and lifted up on a, a in the throne sitting on a throne and his majestic robe reaches all the way from heaven down into the earthly temple in Jerusalem and fills that temple and there's smoke and there's fire and Isaiah is flat on his face terrified overwhelmed undone by the worthiness of God and his unworthiness to be in the presence of God. And John says, verse 41, When Isaiah saw that, he saw Jesus. He saw his glory. See, the glory of God throughout Scripture is the overwhelming, tangible, visible Audible display of God's presence, His worth, His significance, His power, His authority, His terrifying beauty. That is the glory of God in Scripture. And John is saying that Jesus is that. Glory, usually when the glory of God shows up, it shows up as some kind of light or fire. Jesus is the light of the world in that sense. The manifestation of God's worth, God's significance, his power, his Beauty, that is in who Jesus is, what he says and what he does. God's glory is shown as Jesus turned the water into wine, as he healed the blind man, as he raised Lazarus from the dead. We should want to see him because he is the glory of God. And we were made for that see, the central teaching of Scripture and the Christian faith is that we were created for the glory of God. Not just to gaze upon His glory, but to belong to His glory. To become, as Jesus says, sons, children of the light. So that God's significance, His worth becomes the central defining feature of who we are. His will, His beauty becomes the central defining feature of what we want, of what we do. We were made to belong to the glory of God. You know when it's a beautiful day outside like it's not today, (laughs) I don't want to sit inside and just look out the window at it. I want to go outside and be a part of it. I want to feel it. I want to feel the warmth of the sun on my body. We were made for that kind of relationship to the glorious presence of God so that our whole life is unified around His significance, around His worth, around His will, around his beauty, we were made for that. And even if you reject the biblical teaching on glory, even if you say, no, that is not what I was made for, you're still looking for glory. You're still longing for glory. Vincent van Gogh uh, painted a portrait of a friend of his. Uh, The friend's name was Eugene Bosch. And one of the striking features of that painting is not only the visage, the image of his friend, which is in the forefront of the painting. One of the striking things of that painting is what is in the background. He placed his friend before the background of a night sky with beautiful stars shining. It was a unique thing to do in a portrait at that time. And the style of, of that Starry Night uh, anticipates a later more famous painting by Van Gogh called Starry Night. And he wrote to his brother, Vincent Van Gogh wrote to his brother talking about that portrait that he made of his friend. And he says, behind his head, I paint not the dull wall of a plain room, but instead I Paint infinity. There's the longing for glory. Van Gogh wanted to connect his finite friend to infinity. He wanted to connect the finite and the infinite. He wanted somehow for the human to belong to the light of the divine. That is the longing for glory. And even if you reject the biblical teaching about it, you are still on a glory project. You are looking for something or someone or some place or some experience to imitate that. To imitate the significance of the finite belonging To the infinite. Maybe maybe it's a career. Maybe it's your reputation. Your influence. Your success. Maybe it's romance. Maybe it is a marriage. Maybe it's a parental relationship. Maybe it is a friendship. Or a pleasurable experience. Or a meaningful cause. But we are all on a glory project. Because we were made for that. We were made to belong to that. And the problem with all of those imitations is not that they are bad in themselves, but that they cannot bear the weight of our need, of our longing, of our design for glory. And what will happen with all of those imitations, all of those replacement glory projects? is that in the end, either you will crush others with your expectation and desire, or you will be crushed by failure and loss. Because you are made for more. You are made for more. You are made to dwell in the glorious presence of God, for your life to be made whole around His significance, His will, and His beauty. You're made for glory. And that's why you need to see Jesus. That's why we should want to see Jesus. Because we were made for that. But there's a problem. And the problem isn't just that Jesus isn't physically present here for us to see. The problem is that even when he was physically present, people couldn't see it, they couldn't see the glory. And they rejected him. And so even he hid himself, it says here in the middle of our passage. And once again, John weaves in Isaiah to explain what's going on here. You see, when Isaiah saw God, when he saw the majesty of God, God was commissioning him as a prophet. He was sending him with a message, but he says to him in that passage, Isaiah 6, he says, Isaiah, I'm sending you with a message. And this message isn't going to clear things up between me and my people. It's going to make things worse. It's going to harden their hearts. It's going to further blind their eyes. It's going to further dull their hearing. And I am doing that as an expression of judgment because they have continued in their idolatry, because they have continued in their rejection of me, I am sending you Isaiah as a fog machine to make it less clear, to further harden their hearts to me. They couldn't see the glory of God as a result of the judgment of God. And John is saying that's happening here with Jesus. As these people see him turning the water into wine, healing the blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead, and so on and so on, so many signs that he is the glory of God, the people continued to reject him. And so the light of the world. Becomes a fog machine. What he says and does obscures their view as a judgment of God on their continued refusal to repent and believe in him. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do with that problem? What do we do with the problem of God's judgment? Second question If we should see Jesus, how can we see him? And did you notice that Jesus' response to the request of the Greeks, he not only talks about glory, but he connects glory to the clock. And he starts to talk about his hour. And he does this throughout the Gospel of John, always referring to his coming execution. When he speaks about his hour, he is talking about his coming death on the cross. And Jesus is troubled by his hour, just as he was troubled at the tomb of Lazarus last week. He's troubled by it, but he remains committed to this purpose. He remains committed to this mission, to embrace this death, to step towards this hour. And he expresses that commitment by saying, Father, glorify your name. And then the father responds saying, I have glorified it through all these signs that you've done. And I will glorify it in this coming hour when you will die on the cross. Now Jesus is putting things together that we don't tend to put together. He is combining glory and painful death. He is combining worth, significance, power, beauty, and a gruesome execution designed not just to maximize physical pain, but to maximize public shame. The design of of the cross as a means of execution was designed to shame someone. Not just hurt and kill them. And Jesus says, there's glory. There is glory. How can he say that? Why does he put these things together? Well, class, this morning, the answer is always Isaiah. All right. So once again, Isaiah is how he puts these things together. Remember, prophet Isaiah 6, seeing God high and lifted up. That language is significant because it echoes later in Isaiah's book. At the beginning, he sees God high and lifted up. At the end of the book, he speaks into the ruin that has been brought about by God's judgment. And he begins to talk about a brighter future, a better future for God's people, a future of restoration, a future of return. And he says that future will be brought about by a servant. And he says, that servant will not appear according to your expectations. He says, this servant that will bring about God's bright future will be disfigured. He will be beaten. He will be rejected. He will be mocked. And he will be, hear the echo, lifted And he will be lifted up so that he can bear the judgment of God. Even though innocent, he will be lifted up to receive the guilt of God's people. Jesus is saying, I am lifted up. I will be lifted up both in the sense at the beginning of Isaiah and at the end of Isaiah. Jesus is the embodiment of the infinite majesty of God, but he is in the embodiment of that majesty for the sake of coming and bearing the guilt of sin. Bearing the judgment of our rejection, our rebellion against God. He is the embodiment of the majesty of God to come and to be rejected, to be disfigured, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be lifted up on our behalf. And Jesus says that's how. I deal with the problem of the fog machine. That's how I deal with the problem of judgment, God's judgment on sin. Because as I am lifted up, what does he say will happen? I will draw all men to myself. Remember who came and asked to see him? Not Jewish people, but Greek people. And so Jesus was lifted up to draw people, not just from the Jewish nation, but from all nations To himself. Here's the point. You can't see Jesus. Without the cross. You can only. See Jesus. As the glory of God. Through his work. On your behalf. Because he was lifted up. For your guilt. Bearing. Your judgment. You can only see and belong to the light of God's glory. As Jesus bears the darkness of your sin. And as his cross clears away the fog of God's judgment. Seeing Jesus as the glory of God is not something that you can do. Seeing Jesus as the glory of God is not something that you can accomplish with more theological knowledge. It's not something that you can accomplish with more Bible knowledge. It is not something that you can accomplish with better with more spiritual discipline. Seeing glory is something that glory does for you. Not something that you do for yourself. Seeing glory is something that glory does for you. Not what you do for yourself. All you can do is recognize the futility of your own glory projects. And gratefully receive His. This week... I went kayaking in the fog. One of one of those mornings when it was really really dense, I went out on the water and paddled around one of the lakes here in town. And when I started, I could barely see beyond the front of the boat. It was a little scary. <laughs> I barely see all the out past the front of the boat, but by the end of my time, by the time I was finished, The fog had lifted. The fog had cleared. The sun had come out, and it was a beautiful, gorgeous, Tallahassee January day. (laughs) Now, I did a lot of work during that time, paddling around that lake. I did a lot of work. I put forth a lot of effort. But I had nothing to do with the clearing of the fog. I was just there for it. I just watched the sun come out and burn the fog away. It's the Christian life. It's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to see Jesus. To know that you're in the fog of your sin and there's nothing you can do about it. And to by faith watch as Jesus through the work that he did on the cross as he was lifted up for you clears the fog away. That's not to say effort is a bad thing. We should put forth effort as Christians. Reading your Bible and praying and gathering in worship, that's a good thing. Serving others, that is a good thing. What it does is not diminish our efforts, it redirects our efforts. And it says that everything that we do should bring us back to what Jesus has done for us. The goal of all our effort is to waken us and to help us pay attention to the work that Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. As he takes the seed of our lives, like his own life, and puts it in the ground for it to die. For us to die to our own agenda. Our own competency. So that we can sprout, flower, and flourish with God's own power. And with God's own purpose. Glory is in something that you can see. It is something that glory enables you to see. It's Jesus lifted up on your behalf. And so, this week, will you notice it? Will you see it? Will you join these Greeks and say, I want to see Jesus because he is the glory of God and then surrender to what he has done for you. Let's pray.